Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Jack Carson, on how doubt and questioning can lead to a deeper faith. One of the things disillusionment does is it makes us re-examine our faith commitments. And the one thing we can say about Jesus Christ, if I think about the story of Doubting Thomas, is that any time we examine Jesus Christ, he proves to be true. Our sin gets in the way and it gets messy. And one of the things we're hoping to help people do is examine Jesus Christ in a way that actually helps them see him. Jack Carson, next. Jack Carson and Joshua Chatra help people rediscover a more robust faith in the midst of a confusing world in their new book, Surprised by Doubt, How Disillusionment Can Invite Us Into a Deeper Faith. They're urging skeptics and doubters to explore and engage with the Christian faith alongside their doubts. Jack Carson is executive director of the Center for Apologetics and Cultural Engagement at Liberty University. Jack, tell us about your and Joshua Chatra's motivation for writing Surprised by Doubt. I can talk first about me here at the Center. I had a lot of friends, acquaintances, and students who came to Liberty from... uh, Christian homes, Christian backgrounds, and grew up deeply committed to their faith, engaged in Christian practices, came here, even served on leadership, student leadership here, mentoring and discipling other students. And then shortly after leaving uh, the university, and a couple of them even while here, found reasons to begin doubting their faith and went through this new process people are calling deconstruction, where they, from one doubt sort of grow to ask other questions and have other doubts, which snowball into a series of doubts, ultimately, oftentimes culminating in walking away from their faith entirely. And so as I started having friends and acquaintances and students go through this, I talked to my good friend, Josh Shatro, who was at the time the executive director of the Center for Public Christianity in Raleigh, and is now, I believe, the Billy Graham chair for apologetics and cultural engagement at Beeson Divinity School. Um, And we started talking about similar experiences we had. He was a mentor for me. He taught here at Liberty for a while before heading on. He was one of my my professors. And we began talking about how friends of ours were going through this and what similarities they had. And I think we both felt burdened to find a way to package answers in a compelling way for them because many of the traditional answers and apologetic books just seem not to be catching much traction in their minds and it it kind of lost what we, we started talking about is that the intellectual mass it didn't have the ability to move them anymore they'd been exposed to these arguments before and somehow the power had been drained out of them and so as we started talking about that we sort of came up with a central analogy for the book and ran from there. What about your own uh, personal background? Did it play a role? It did. It did. So um, I think most people get into apologetics because they have a personal background with doubt. And it's no different for me. I grew up 
in the church, deeply embedded and involved in church community. But even as I was there, questions would begin to plague me. And I had uncertainties. And it seemed to me as if many apologists that I'd been exposed to over-promised and under-delivered on what actually they could demonstrate and prove. And there was this intense confidence that would come off of people on stage. But as you began to ask additional questions off the stage or in their books, you'd find that it's not quite as airtight as they presented it. And that, of course, caused me doubt. Josh had been helpful and instrumental in me walking through that doubt, which is one of the reasons we got together to write this particular project. So you're saying, uh, and I think you do in the book, there might be the phrase youth group, Christianity, certainty is stressed, and yes. doubt is uh, kind of to be avoided or not not, yes. not mentioned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and that would never be said out loud, but it was sort of embedded in the practices of the youth group community, right? There was a sort of um, taboo when it came to doubt. If you said you had doubts, all of a sudden everyone had to take it very seriously and zoned in on that, and it became a big thing. And so people didn't want to feel like projects, and so they wouldn't bring their doubts to bear in the group. Certainty was mentioned from stage, was sort of embedded in the community, and there was very little space to ask rigorous questions within that. Not, again, I, I, I think not something that any youth group leaders intend to have happen here. I think most of my youth group leaders, youth group leaders I've met are all incredibly well-meaning individuals and they want their students to have confidence. And so that sort of drive for confidence can sometimes develop an ecosystem that minimizes the capacity for students to ask uh, hard questions. Well, your book, uh, yours and uh, Joshua Chatro's book has the image of the attic as, yes. as a central metaphor, if you, if you would talk about that. Yeah, so C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, probably the most important apologetic book of the past uh, at least 200, 300 years, introduces people to what he calls the house of faith. It's this building, this metaphor for Christianity, where there are many rooms that represent the different denominations and eras and ways of being Christian, but he's inviting people into the hallway, what he calls Mere Christianity. It's the space united by the the common creeds and standards of the entire house, not yet sort of divided out into a denomination. We saw Lewis's uh, analogy here, his metaphor that he was building, and we imagined a new way that it would fit this current trend of deconstruction, a, a way to retool the, the metaphor, and that's to introduce people who, have, who are going through deconstruction to a room of the house called the attic. And it's a room in the house that is built, uh, as I was narrating my youth group experience, you'll probably see the similarities. It was built far away from the door, far away from leaving the house of faith with rigid standards, uh, a lot of times epistemological standards, right? A lot of very much rigid standards when it comes to how you believe things and what you believe. And it was well intended. It was built to protect the young people in the church. But it was built uh, to reflect upon these standards in a way that almost presented the attic as the only legitimate room in the house, that all other rooms were somewhat suspect. And it didn't have Lewis's sort of generous, mere Christianity feel. The attic instead has a sort of sectarianism where it pulls itself away from other strands of Christianity for whatever reason. Um, 
and exhibits a sort of practice that suggests there is one clear right way to be Christian on all of these issues, and that is the way that's being given in this space at this time, which of course sets up very hard standards for people to live up to. And we found that the attic as a description fit what many people deconstructing experienced growing up, or at least what they now reflected on as their experience growing up. And so this would be, again, well-meaning. You used used the phrase, of course, for youth pastors, but for parents that raise their kids, want to protect them, want to teach them. These These are really the standards of of That's right. true Christianity. That's right. And it's very well-meaning, and a lot of times these can come across as uh, intense standards sort of building far away from what we would say is the, the grounding, the foundation of Christianity, what we identify as the historic creeds, the standards that all Christians everywhere have always held to. And it would be something more um, exact about maybe how you shouldn't listen to non-Christian music, or we use the example of purity culture, how when I was in uh, youth group, there was an intense trend to suggest young people should not date for fear of purity reasons, that that if they date, we saw the rising sort of um, mm-hmm. divorce rates coming out of the sexual revolution, and we were afraid that if our students dated, it would be like practicing for divorce. And so we set up all of these standards within the church to keep high school students from dating. Joshua Harris, the author of the book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, that sort of started this phenomenon, has now gone through an intense deconstruction and walked away from Christianity altogether. But that sort of standard, when it is presented as a way to be a faithful Christian, that if you are to date, you're an unfaithful Christian, if you don't date, you're a faithful Christian, it it's one of those walls of the attic. It creates an additional standard for orthodoxy on top of all the traditional standards and the creeds. It's just another measurement of being right. And if you build up all of these measurements, it just starts to get a little claustrophobic, kind of like an attic. So obviously, too, uh, early on, you, you talk about the influence of, I think it's a 1990s uh, Christian song, contemporary Christian song by a, a group called Audio Adrenaline called Big House. Mm. Yeah, so so um that was that was one of Josh's additions, which I thought was really really helpful. But it um it's sort of this emphasis that in the Audio Adrenaline song there was a sort of generous big big house concept. But for the people growing up in the attic, the big house didn't continue to feel so big as you actually grow up and leave this community that has reinforced your beliefs over time. You begin to encounter person after person after person who disagrees, maybe on small things, maybe on large things, but because of how rigid and tight your standards are, well, it begins to feel like the house you've constructed is incredibly small and almost no one fits in this house. You wouldn't have C.S. Lewis in your house. You wouldn't be able to have R.C. Sproul or other other Christian leaders. You name these people, almost none of them would fit in your house of faith, and the big, big house starts to feel really quite small. 
Well, the book is Surprised by Doubt, How Disillusionment Can Invite Us Into Deeper Faith. My guest is uh, the co-author, uh, Jack Carson, who is Executive Director of the Center for Apologetics and Cultural Engagement, and he's co-author, along with Joshua Chatra, of the book. So the thread is, at a Christianity, that of a feeling that there is a sort of a, a, a narrow way or a small, enclosed way to see the Christian faith that is right, or at least from the perspective of the person that holds that, and to move down into the larger part of the house that C.S. Lewis talked about, where you have the hallway and mere Christianity and all these doors to these different expressions of Christianity, that would be watering down or compromising your faith. And yet, uh, when you're when you're in the attic, uh, the, it can lead to the disillusionment because you can see that there are so many ways that the narrow view may not play out in real life. Let's say you grew up in a church context that had a particular view of eschatology, how Jesus is going to come back, how and when he'll return. Yeah. And your particular uh, church teaches this way almost as a certainty, as a, as a sure thing as you're growing up. And you, just like so many other beliefs, receive this not with some sort of what we might call epistemological humility, where there's a, a chance you're wrong on this point, but you receive it as, well, uh, the same as all other orthodox truth. It's on the same level. It's all just as certain. Well, when you grow up a little and you go and get a job and you start hanging out with, say, let's say you grew up premillennial, you start hanging out with someone who's amillennial, mm -hmm. and you find out that they're a really good Christian who's committed to their church and is deeply involved, all of a sudden you're really confused because all of your doctrine was set at the same level. Well, this could happen with... Um, theories of evolution or creation. It could happen with how you've envisioned uh, gender roles. Mm. In any of these areas, if your church imbibed a, a perspective that put those issues at the same level as the resurrection of Jesus Christ, if you grow to, to have a disagreement with your home community, which everyone grows to have disagreements with everyone, right? That's part of growing up. You grow to form your own beliefs. Well, it's hard to separate out at that point your disagreement on these issues with your disagreements uh, with, with the way you had previously agreed on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And now all of your faith is thrown into doubt specifically because you've grown disillusioned with your home community's rigid commitments on all issues. And there were, you were never taught what we might call theological triage. The mm. issue of seeing first things as first things and, tear, and, and having tears for the various beliefs and how confident we can be in those beliefs. And so that sort of throws all of your faith and doubt. And it, it can happen along so many lines, partisan politics, the way you view mental health. There are so many issues in our world today that demand people form an opinion. And it's almost impossible to have all the same opinions as a group of people you grew up with. So if all of the opinions are sort of locked as one tight system that should be objectively true, well, disillusionment sets in really quick. Mm. And you talk about, and we'll just are kind of touching on each of these points, obviously, for people that want to get the full picture, there there is obviously the book, uh, surprised by doubt to read, but you, you talk about when uh, those that be, are moving out of or jumping out of the attic, there are four potential landing spots. You talk about the new atheism, yep. optimistic skepticism, myth, 
Mythic Truth and Open Spirituality. Yep. <laughs> it's a lot, but can, can you talk about those four possible I can. landing spots? I can. So the big thing we're doing there is uh, helping people who are deconstructing realize that if they deconstruct from Christianity, they're going to have to land somewhere. A lot of times what's happening is they formed this one particular doubt about Christianity that snowballed, and they realized Christianity is not this, it doesn't have this sort of 100% scientific rigid certainty that they can prove and the way they can prove a math problem. Mm -hmm. And so they begin, if, if they thought that's how it worked, then now their, their faith is thrown into doubt and they feel like they should just question everything. What we're suggesting to them is what Blaise Pascal did a long time ago. And we're saying anytime you have a belief, you're wagering. It's, it's his classic, Pascal's wager. Mm -hmm. You're wagering on a set of beliefs and assumptions. And if you're going to leave the attic, if you're going to jump out the window is the analogy we use. You're going to land in some sort of belief system that you then have to wager on. There's four of them that we mentioned. New atheism uh, is the first one. It's not actually where many people are landing, but it sort of operates as a center of gravity that's causing a lot of doubt because new atheism has so much vitriol in it. There's not a whole lot of people that land here because it's hard to live in. Bart Ehrman's sort of skepticism is the next one where he's not so much an atheist in that he doesn't think God is real, um, but he's skeptical, agnostic, uncertain about what to think. And so a lot of people can feel drawn towards that uh, after growing up in a very certain space. They can be drawn towards the, the comfort with uncertainty. Though uh, Bart Ehrman's take is a little more negative on spirituality than the third position, which we think is the most common by far. Rhett McLaughlin, who was a YouTube personality, is a YouTube personality, the co-host of Good Mythic Morning, one of, I think, the top 10 YouTube channels around, hmm. publicly deconstructed about three years ago. And in his public deconstruction, he talks about his new position, which is being comfortable in the sea of uncertainty, which he contrasts with his time growing up, where he was told he had to achieve that rigid certainty we've been talking about. And he describes faith as a sort of... Uh, uh, one analogy we've used is a almost a smorgasbord of options where you, you go into faith and you form your belief, finding what fits out there, and you can cobble together meaning as you want. This is very um, almost in line with what Frederick Nietzsche said we had to do. We had to be meaning makers because there is no meaning in the universe. And so what he is suggesting is people do this. They form their own meaning. Lots of people land here, but the question we would ask that people are wagering on is something like, how much does made-up meaning actually mean? Mm. How much can you actually commit to these moral sentiments you're trying to hold on to, which is why they land here, because they want to hold on to spirituality and moral sentiments. But without the story, the rationality that Christianity gives, it's really hard to make sense of any of those moral sentiments, which leads to the fourth position, mythic truth which is uh, represented by us almost best by Jordan Peterson, is not a Christian in any sort of traditional sense where he would affirm the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ, but he does say that it's best to live as if Jesus rose from the dead because it's this sort of mythic truth 
that represents the deepest human longings and intuitions. And so these four positions range from most hostile to Christianity to least hostile. Almost when you get to Jordan Peterson, it's it's taking on Christianity even if you don't believe it's true because of how good and beautiful it is. And with these four positions, we just ask questions about why someone would land there. And we suggest that C.S. Lewis's option that Christianity is a myth, but is, of course, the true myth, might be the best way to go. And then you encourage, uh, just, to, just to carry on with the metaphor, yeah. people to walk downstairs from the yes. attic to, to see if the house is actually sturdy, to see what the foundations right. are. What, what, what does that involve? That's right. So a lot of our experiences as we were interacting with people who deconstructed and deconverted, I was finding that many of the issues they presented about Christianity should be very easy um, intellectually to, to walk through. They feel as if Christianity is anti-intellectual because that maybe the community they grew up in didn't have a rigorous intellectual life. And I could show them how Christianity has been a bastion of intellectual development in the Western world for 2,000 years. They maybe uh, grew up and now they're reflecting on their time growing up. They see it as um, stifling of intellectual freedom. Or maybe they see their time growing up as sexist or xenophobic or any number of things. And I can show them how Christianity has actually given us the resources to, to say that sexism is wrong and xenophobia is wrong. I can demonstrate to them that Christianity is where we get these moral commitments. And yet it wasn't sticking. It wasn't making sense to them. They felt like I was just patching a sinking ship with mm -hmm. my words. And so by introducing the attic, we gave them a way to locate their experiences with Christianity. And then we invite them into the historical tradition that is Christianity, what the community of saints has been doing for 2,000 years. And so we invite them downstairs to sort of explore the main floor of Christianity, which we say is centered on the person of Jesus Christ, which we have a, a chapter sort of introducing them to some additional thoughts about Jesus Christ maybe they haven't considered. And it's marked out, the, the load-bearing walls of the main floor, the things you have to affirm are marked out by the historic creeds of Christianity, where you have these early creeds, the Apostles, Nicene Creed, that all Christians have agreed upon and that form the bedrock of our, our sort of faith, um, or the, the walls that sort of mark out what we have to affirm. And inviting them downstairs, we're hoping to help them reimagine their faith in a way that isn't so tied to the parochial version that they now are fully rejected. And so we're trying to help them reimagine it without just throwing the arguments at them that they've heard before and now just feel like they can reject outright. We're giving them a way to reimagine Christianity as something they're being invited into, even though they grew up in a part of it. We're helping them them see that the greater tradition isn't something that they're fully aware of. So you're helping them examine the foundations of Christianity, or I think you call that looking at Christianity. That's right. And looking through Christianity, does it have explanatory power? That's right. And, all, and then finally, stepping into Christianity. You say this in the book that this is the ultimate test, that Christianity must be experienced. I, right. So often it can stay as a sort of a mental construct. Is that is that what you're saying? That's right. That's right. So we use Lewis's, another Lewis's analogies where he's doing the meditations on tool shed and he says that it's very different when you're standing in a dark tool shed 
and you imagine the beams coming into the tool shed. It's a very different experience when you look at that beam with sort of the dust floating through it and the motes of light. It's very different looking at it than when you look through it to the world outside. And so part of what Lewis is, Lewis is saying here is that examining the truth claims of Christianity in the sort of tight, rigid way that does logic and deduction and examines whether or not they can be true is different than looking through Christianity at the world around us to see if it sort of explains the world. Does it make sense of this weird existence we have? And finally, the stepping into Christianity says, when you actually put your life on the line, and as Blaise Pascal says, when you wager on Christianity and you wake up and you live a life that's committed to that, what are the ways in which you can see Christianity's truth bearing you forward? And so these second two ways, stepping into and looking through Christianity, are ways that I think a lot of people growing up in the attic uh, haven't experienced. And so we, it, it is important to look at, which is something they've experienced before, examining the truth of Christianity. But particularly, we say, look at Jesus, look at the creeds, do triage to know what's most important. And then we say, hey, look at the world around you. Look at justice. Look at beauty. Look at the way that Christianity gives your life meaning. And you intuitively believe the world matters and has meaning already. And so does Christianity make sense of that feeling? Does Christianity make sense of the fact that you think beauty is significant? And if Christianity does, then why don't you try it on wager on Christianity and live your life, step into the practices of the church to see if it if it fits, if it actually seems to be the way to find true joy in this life. So this is the link that your book talks about, Surprised by Doubt, the subtitle, How Disillusionment Can Invite Us mm. into a Deeper Faith. You just explained how that can happen. That's right. That's right. Were you going to add something to that? No, I can. I think um, one of the things disillusionment does is it makes us re-examine our faith commitments. And the one thing we can say about Jesus Christ, if I think about the story of Doubting Thomas, is that any time we examine Jesus Christ, he proves to be true. Our sin gets in the way, and it gets messy. And one of the things we're hoping to help people do is examine Jesus Christ in a way that actually helps them see him. And so by doing this, by telling people to look at look through and step into Christianity, we're hoping to invite them into a path that gives them a deeper faith. Mm. And just kind of as a, as a footnote, can I ask what was particularly helpful for you as you kind of mm. walked this path? So the stepping into church community is a huge thing mm. for me. The way that the community actually operates as something that gives plausibility to Christianity. When you can see the way Christianity draws a people together and actually gives them the ability to have this sort of supernatural love, it does make the story, the claims of Christianity plausible to you. And I think also the way that we intuitively affirm so many things about the world around us that, as I mentioned them earlier, that we intuitively affirm that beauty matters, that love is significant, and it that there is true meaning in this world and that our lives actually matter, that other people's lives matter. We intuitively say all of these things, but we need a story that makes sense of it. And the only story I've found that can bear all of that weight 
in a way that's actually reasonable and rational and consistent is Christianity. And so that looking through out of the three sort of kinds of rationality we were talking about, looking through did a lot for me. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Jack Carson, Executive Director of the Center for Apologetics and Cultural Engagement at Liberty University, and co-author along with Joshua Chatra of Surprised by Doubt, How Disillusionment Can Invite Us Into a Deeper Faith. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Kurt Dillinger on his mission to begin pro-life ministries in many countries around the world. There are incredible ministries that are going on around the globe right now that are very effective in that life message and bringing that to individual people who are in crisis. Um, And along with that, more times than not, uh, people come to know Jesus through that. So there's an inseparability between the sanctity of human life message and the gospel. That's tomorrow at the same time, right here on His People. Thanks for listening.